Okay, so it seems. Today is June the 2nd, <coughs> excuse me, uh, lecture, or June the 2nd, 2019, I hope. Lecture discussion number 66, I also hope that's correct too, on the book of Joel. And we are back from our usual Memorial Day weekend absence. And as usual, letters have accumulated, and so I wish to field a couple of those before we uh, return from whence we came, which is Revelation 1 through 3. So which one am I going to do first? I should do the... I should do... Let me see here. I have three. I'll do this one first. This is Gary from Minnesota. And he sent me this. I am weird, and so to prove it by writing... Oh, I'm sorry. I am weird, and so prove it by writing. I love your sermon audio videos, and I am really disturbed that you no longer post videos. Yes, that you is who he's talking to. Just audio. I called you, but you are trying to make me stop by not answering. The long and short of it is I love your style or lack of it. So, of that. And then he goes on to say, you crack me up. I am 73 years old and have been a student for almost, uh, of the word for almost 50 years. I have, rarely I have found someone who delves into the subjects that you do. Is that a shock? No, it's not. And I am so amused and grateful that I had to write to you. So I just want you to know that there are people in Minneapolis that think I'm funny. More evidence. Uh, I, I wrote him back. I told him that I had no authority over anything that finds its way into the ether of the Internet. All such matters are the purview of my disloyal staff, S-T-A-P-H, who make decisions by means of rolling small animal bones on a McDonald's food tray and muttering. That's, uh, or so I'm informed. Anyway, I just wanted to read his because anyone who thinks I'm funny, I particularly have uh, affection for. This comes from Anthony in uh, Colorado. Thank you. I've been listening to you for about a year and a half, and we have great sympathy for you, Anthony, and have covered most of the back sermons. I teach a class from time to time and was very encouraged to find someone that shares many of my same conclusions concerning Scripture and the events that have placed humanity in this plight. I do have one special request. I know you have covered Mineral Eden and the timing of the fall of Satan several times. However, I have not yet found a recorded sermon that has it all consolidated into one sermon. Instead, it seems to be sprinkled among other topics. Could you do, could you please do a comprehensive sermon on the issue of Genesis 1, 1 through 2? If you launch into this topic, the congregation can blame me. <laughs> And he is from Alaska. He had worked here on the uh, pipeline, likely the same time I was at Alaska Pipeline as the, uh, as the technical uh, instructor for, the, for SCADA, Systems Control and Data Acquisition, if you want to know what that acronym was. Uh, what can I say to Anthony? Uh, Anthony, you're right. It is all throughout the, the – how many sermons did you send that one gentleman that wanted Four hundred and fifty, uh, Supper Dave, if he exists, sent to who was it? A gentleman in Ireland? Daniel. We can't say his name, as you know. Yeah, that's right. You get him in trouble. He'll have 
he'll have people knocking on his door. But uh, there's 450 lectures, and you're right. Uh, Adam is, might be in every one of them, and he's in this one too. The problem that I have is there's the material is so overwhelming that I cannot get it consolidated. And so all I'm able to do is exactly what I've done. It would be wonderful if we could figure out how to find as much of that as we can. And you, you have a comment? Yeah, exactly right. I'm being advised to do it in, in five hours, but I'm afraid that I can't do it in five hours. I had a gentleman call me many, many years ago. He found my uh, Antichrist material. Uh, he was uh, he was going to be he's a student, I believe. I can't remember the story exactly, but I'm pretty sure he was a student. And he wanted his professor had asked him to come up with a different position on the Antichrist. And he got on sermon audio and he found mine. He, he went, this is the mother load. Can't get can't get any more different than this. So my Adam and Eve positions are very similar in that regard. And there's so many of them. So I don't know what to do about it, Anthony. I'm, I hope uh, you like today, because here it comes again. Okay, we are Revelation 1 through 3, which is the seven church prophecy. It may not seem like it again today, but it is. We're going to try to catch things up to try to get it together so that we can continue for the next few weeks, even though this is summer. Uh, you may remember that we diverted into the thick foliage of Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4. Uh, that's where we were. Let's get rid of last week's mistake. So that's where we are again today. We'll be moving around. Whoops. Matthew 4. We go in correct order. Mark 1, Luke 4. Now, most people really emphasize just Luke and Matthew, and I think that is a, uh, an error that they would regret if they began to study it. Believe it or not, Mark 1 is incredible. It's only three verses, but it's incredible. Those three verses add so much to Luke 4 and Matthew 4. Uh, I hope I do it justice today. This is Satan's confrontational class with Jesus Christ. I have Satan and Jesus start considering what this could possibly mean. It's called the testing of Christ by those who are theologically sound. It's called the temptation of Christ by those who do not understand anything about Christ. I mentioned earlier to those in the uh, in the pregame that I have, uh, I, I'll try to pull one out here and hold it up so you can see it. You folks on the Internet, uh, I would recommend that you... How close do I have to be? Is that going to work? Maybe. This is uh, Pat Marvenko Smith, who's an artist that uh, tr did her best to depict Christ as he actually is described in Scripture with respect to the Transfiguration, Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days, Daniel 10, Revelation 1 through 3, and Revelation 19. Uh, Dave's going to try to get a, a, a better... And this is who he is. Now, there is an error on it, and everyone always asks me about it, so I don't want to neglect it. The words on his thigh aren't actually written on his thigh. He would not violate his, his uh, Levitical, um, the, the, the law, the Mosaic law. He wouldn't do that, so it can't be that way. But it does show the feet and the head and the eyes and the hair and the many things. He would have the sword 
which is really excellent, the saints behind him, he would have a talit, and on the fringe of the talit would declare him to be king of kings and lord of lords in the knots of the talit. Anyway, I mention that because it's so important that you know who Christ really is, and you know this is how he is now for sure, but he has always been this way, what that picture depicts, so he can't possibly be tempted. You must be kidding me. Have a view of Christ that is at the highest possible level. Get rid of this low, insulting, inaccurate position that the church loves. When you see him, he will look like this. He will not look like what's almost in every church in the whole world. So I I credit this lady for what she has tried to do. And I give her, that's why I've handed these out amongst the people here today, for those of you on the Internet, because I think it is important once we're into the book of Revelation. Now, I should always mention, whenever we're addressing Mark 4, I'm sorry, Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, that it's most likely that Satan was not fully aware of who he was talking to. He did not know the full nature of Christ. He's partially aware of it. In other words, uh, not instead of fully aware of who he's, who is Christ, he had a partial concept. But I'm of the opinion that Satan was unable to solve the mystery of godliness, which is the hypostatic union. This is the solution to sin. And thus he viewed Jesus Christ as the replacement for Adam or the second Adam only, and not the creator God in the flesh. It never occurred to him that this is the creator of God. Now, keep in mind that he moves fast. We'll get to that in a second. He did not know at the time when he began Matthew 4, you have to go through Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4, and try to figure, try to ascertain when Satan came up to an understanding that this is not who he thought in the original When he originally confronted him, he did not know this is the ancient of days, the judge of all things. John 522, which Satan had direct experience with. Right. Genesis 315. And I'm proposing, therefore, that this is that he has a learning curve, which is absolutely consistent with how the Bible describes him. He had a learning curve with respect to God's mysteries, especially, as I mentioned, the foremost mystery, which is the mystery of godliness, which is 1 Timothy 3.16. So, whenever you're talking about Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke, you're also having to be aware of the understanding of 1 Timothy 3.16 with respect to Satan. The length and the scope of the discovery process of Satan is probably indeterminable. I don't think you can actually say for sure this is when he knows. But I think it's practical to assume that Satan processes information at a supernatural rate that is unequaled in all of creation. Among created beings, I I think he adjusts to unforeseen events in a manner that almost appears seamless, especially seamless to the naive students of Scripture. Judas with Satan inside of him is a primary example of how Satan adjusts, how quickly he adjusts. Judas with Satan inside him throws the silver at the temple potter. That's Matthew 27, 3 through 10. That's also Zechariah 11, 13. 
Judas is the one who throws the silver at the temple potter. And that's evidence that Judas Satan, and let me put that on the board too. There is a time when Judas and Satan are not separable. What separates them? Think about that question. But there's a time when they're not separable. Judas Satan recognizes the plan of Christ at some point in the crucifixion week. And they recognize that Christ is to surrender himself. And they move quickly to counter that. Because it was completely unexpected in my view. And that is why he runs to the temple and he try, he throws the silver to the temple potter. You go to Zechariah eleven thirteen. that begins to unravel. Unfortunately, Anthony, that's somewhere on the internet. I... I wish I could tell you. So this is for Anthony in Colorado. And though Satan had experienced the defeat and surrender of the first Adam, uh, the silver throwing is a contingency in, in, in the sense it could be that he he knew that there was a possibility that Christ would surrender because... He knew Adam, the first Adam, had been defeated and surrendered. But I don't think that he thought Christ was defeated when he surrendered. If that makes any sense. Nonetheless, it's possible that he anticipated it and the throwing of the silver wasn't a unexpected act or, a, or an adjustment, but was in fact part of his plan all along. I'm not sure of any of the possibilities there, but I'm going to lean, as, you, as I just kind of intimated, that Satan reacts quickly, and it's hard to tell the difference between something that he did not understand and something that he just moved so fast at. Does that make sense? If it does, I'm sorry. In any event, when reading Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, always, 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 always keep Genesis 3 close by, because that's what's here. Mark 4, I'm sorry, Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, and Genesis 3. This Genesis 3 is the Old Testament complement to the testing of Christ. Jesus Christ is the last Adam, sometimes correctly referred to as the second Adam. They, those are in, interchangeable. And that, of course, means that I'm talking about the first Adam. I can't talk about the second Adam without looking at the first Adam. And the 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 term Adam is, of course, the term given to the federal headship of humanity. Adam, in Genesis 3, was the first federal head of humanity. Christ is the second head of humanity, federal head of humanity, and therefore the last federal head of humanity. So, you make this correct attachment of Genesis 3 to Mark, Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4. When you do that... All that you have left to, to work out now is the angelic audience. Because there is an angelic audience here. Well, then there would be an angelic audience here. How many men, how, many, how much of humanity watched the confrontation between Satan, the woman, and Adam at Genesis 3? It's kind of an easy question. How many watched it at Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4? 
Keep in mind the chronology. When did the disciples come? How many men are in the desert watching Christ and Satan? How hot's the desert? How much food is there? How much water is there? So get an understanding of the angelic audience. It's the only audience. Now, of the angelic audience, how many are fallen? How many are unfallen? Is there anybody that missed it? If you're in the angel business at the time, do you go, oh, look, there's Satan and there's the second Adam. The first Adam defeated, if you will. He surrendered himself in Genesis 3. Notice how I said that. Here comes the second Adam. Who's going to prevail? But once you understand the angelic audience, the obvious questions begin to take form for you. And the first of these is to ask if Adam experienced a typological relative of Matthew 4, Luke, Mark 1, and Luke 4. What do I mean by that? Let's put it this way. Did Satan confront the first federal head? Yes, he did. We have recorded him confronting the woman. What is left out is him confronting the first federal head. Did he confront the first federal head before the woman? Did he confront the first federal head after the woman? How many times did Satan come to Adam? I think he certainly came. I think that uh, that's obvious. And I have proof of that because I see this in Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4. I have Romans 5 that leads me there. So here comes the second question of all of that. Where, um, where did Satan confront Adam? Obviously the garden. Were the tests presented to Adam exactly the same as those brought before Christ? I think not. Why do I think not? Well, I'll get to that in a minute, but I, I will argue for their similarity. Adam was not deceived. You've heard me say that thousands of times. I don't say it enough. First Timothy 2.14. For Adam was formed first. There's an order here. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. That's the order of First Timothy 2.14. But the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. So Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. So Adam obviously was not deceived before the woman was deceived, right? So if Adam is not deceived before the woman was deceived, what's that mean with respect to Satan? Who was the first target? As you know, it's my opinion that Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15 is far more extensive than commonly considered. And I just gave you that I believe it's in exact order, specifically for, for us to understand that order. 1 Timothy 2, um, 1 Timothy, my goodness, 2, 13 through 15 uh, presents a sequence as well as a, a general recitation of the events. Adam did not believe he did not ever believe the lies of Satan. So when exactly and how many lies did Satan attempt on Adam? How many times did Satan contend with Adam before he shifted to the woman? If he shifted to the woman immediately at her uh, when she is brought to Adam at her creation, 
Now we have to put all of that together in a timeline, don't we? It's only logical, in my view, to accept that the, the likelihood of Satan's reasoning that Adam was weakened by his love for the woman is, is just, I think it's plain. As soon as Satan sees the woman come to Adam and he recognizes the relationship that they have, then he began to consider the weakness of Adam at this point. And that theme reprises throughout Scripture. It is common in Scripture, is it not? The most familiar is who? Who is a man, a type of Christ, in the Old Testament that is weakened by woman? You should all yell it out. That's right. It's the Nazarite champion of Israel. The judge of Israel. He's the one that most bring up here with this kind of theme. He is drawn to harlots and treacherous woman, and that results in his death. There's no implication that the mother of all living is treacherous or a harlot. I'm not saying that. Please don't send me mail. Or you can. But I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we see this theme of men being uh, drawn to their death because they have a love of of a woman who is participating in that. Naturally, Samson would reach back to Genesis 3 to Adam because he's a type of Christ. He's an extraordinary type of Christ. So uh, he would definitely uh, demonstrate that similarity. The, the issue is, again, the man is overcome through the woman. And the three women of Samson, that's a fascinating study. Uh, the harlot, I'm sorry, the, the Philistine, the harlot, and uh, Delilah. Okay, now I finally get to my third letter uh, from Ralph Lorraine. Hi, Pastor Stephen. I've wondered about something for a long time. Since I became a believer in 1985, I've always thought that through our own volition, we are responsible for our own sins. Then I met other Christians. Well, Ralph, that's where you went wrong, right there. I don't know. Then I met other Christians who placed the blame squarely on Satan and even in some cases went to church to get that sin devil cast out of them. Yes, he puts that in quotations. The rhetoric being, the devil's been at me again. And that is a regular occurrence. It never seemed right to me to blame anyone but ourselves for anything else. I'm sorry. It never seemed right to me to blame anyone but ourselves and anything else was a cop-out. However, there are some Bible passages that say we need to avoid the fiery darts of the wicked one, Ephesians 6.16. So, obviously, we need to address Ephesians 6.16, and I'm going to do that with Matthew 6, but that happens in a minute. Given that Satan is not omnipresent, and he's correct about that, yay, Ralph, uh, and Lorraine, sorry, Lorraine, how can he be making people all over the world sin at the same time? Well... Kind of answers the question in the question, doesn't it? Anyone who answers the question while giving the question, I think, deserves some kind of uh, incredible praise. (laughs) The the Flip Wilson Award. No one knows who that is. You old person. Gosh. (laughs) Your joke wasn't even slightly funny because no one knows who that is. (laughs) Ah. Does Satan or his, let's see, does Satan and or his, his demons make us sin? And if so, given his lack of omnipotence, how is that possible? Again, he answered the question in the question. Fantastic. He is such a quick study. Maybe he was already this way and I get no credit. 
Your clarification would be greatly appreciated. So once again, answer me that dude. I've also included your favorite sustenance, dude. I apologize if it was cooled down in transit. You know, an email from you sometime would be nice. I have included a free online, online typing course. If you decide to read this to your church, please give them a furious wave from me. Hey, guys. They waved back, Ralph. <sighs> okay. Now, because Ralph from New Zealand provided me the free typing instruction, I actually wrote a response. I actually did. And it was brilliantly composed. I say that <laughs> because of something that happened to it. It took me hours to construct because I have the one-finger method. Sometimes I use the thumb, but mostly it's one finger. Uh, and what do you think occurred? If you guessed it was rejected by the email authorities, you'd be correct. So everything that I tried to send Ralph and Lorraine with respect to this letter um, was rejected. I received a terse advisory from those who control the emailing, emaily thingies. And they informed me that, uh, or at least I think that's who they are. They informed me that I was discarded. My composition was refused and, and extinguished by New Zealand with prejudice on the basis that I had characteristics similar to a Hormel meat product. They thought that I was something posing as meat, or what we call spam here. And obviously, my only conclusion is that the country of New Zealand hates me. It's hostile. I, mean, I don't think there's any other way to look at it. I can't be wrong about that. So I thought it best to revisit the issues because they are about Satan and they are about Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4. Who is Satan? He is up against an omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, uh, 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 what, which one did I leave out? Omniscient God of creation who is timeless. And he is not. Satan is not. I'll get to that in a second. So it fits in here and I need to make it as clear as I can. And I feel the need to kind of win over New Zealand now to see if they'll let me through in the future. The New Zealandese, I think. Is that correct? Not to be confused. The first thing you see when you see New Zealand is what? Where's Old Zealand? It has to be an Old Zealand. There is an Old Zealand, of course. Yeah, it's in the Netherlands. So far, I haven't made them, I haven't offended them. I haven't offended the Netherlands. There's still time. Anyway, those who promote Satan as the cause of human sin are in error and in direct conflict with Scripture, as Ralph and Lorraine correctly point out. Satan is a creation, a created being. He is restricted by time and space. Satan is not omnipresent, not omniscient, non, uh, not omnipotent. He is extraordinarily intelligent. Ezekiel 28:12. Don't underestimate him. Don't have an opinion of him that is... That is frivolous. And that's what Ralph is uh, disclosing with respect to people who talk about Satan the way they do. I suggested to Ralph that every time that I have seen this occur, especially from the pulpit, when some pastor gets up and said, Satan attacked me the other day, please give me money. 
Okay, I added the last part. But that's exactly what it is. It's a self-aggrandizement. I am so important that Satan is attacking me. That makes me equal to who? Oh, yeah, Matthew 4. I'm right there, man. I'm in the fight. Christ is gone, so come after me and give me money. I studied some shortcutting there. Satan is not omnipotent. He's not looking for idiot pastors and give me a place. He's just not doing it. He's also opposed by the God of heaven. He's restrained. That's proven in Matthew 4. Christ sends him away. Away with you, Satan. Therefore, Satan cannot, does not, effect directly the sins of individuals. The accountability of our sins will be on us. John 5.22, Hebrews 5.12-13, Hebrews 9.27, Revelation 20.12-15, and countless other places in Scripture. If you're going to stand in front of the throne and say, Satan made me do it, Flip Wilson, I'm using your joke. No one laughed again. Not even close. Okay, three people, but there's only four people here. So the point being is that if that is your plan, it will be uh, not well received. Satan is able to lie and to deceive. That's Genesis 3.13, John 8.44. He lies about the goodness of God, the holiness of God, Genesis 3, 1 through 4. And Satan is able to spread his lies by the abundance of his traffic, Ezekiel 28, 16. That's the important thing that Satan does. And that is happening at Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4 as it was going on. Because who's watching? The angelic realm. And Satan has an opportunity to, to present his arguments again, if you will, in front of all of them. When he did it to Adam and the woman, how many recruits did he get? Because this battle has been going on a long time. And the abundance of his traffic, that means going person by person by person. You also see the abundance of his travels, but traffic is more specifically accurate. He went angel by angel by angel. If you find me on the Internet discussing this, I made the case that he started with the cherubim first because they were the ruling class, if you will. They were the generals. So... Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4 expose the fundamental lies of Satan, as does Genesis 3 and Genesis 15. Genesis 15, Genesis 3 both contain the solution to sin. We have the Judas Satan. We have the, whoops, we have the Jesus God. Oops, let me put it better. In Acts, Christ is referred to with no hyphen. You can make the same parallel, if you will, with Judas and Satan. They became one in the sense that they acted as a unit. Genesis 15 tells us that there is a solution to sin. So does Genesis 3. The God-man, the Word made flesh, the last Adam, the mystery of godliness, that is going to come and end the lives of Satan. Even a small 
cursory reading of Scripture will show anyone who takes any time in that regard that that is true, that there is a solution to sin. That is the opposite of what Satan is presenting. And even though a cursory read of Scripture will demonstrate that, nonetheless, the world continues to believe the lies and they, the world willfully denies and chooses to abandon the truth of Jesus Christ. And it's happening at an accelerated rate, as, as was pointed out in the... Uh, in the uh, offertory by Bill. The prophecies of Revelation 1 through 3, the seven church prophecies and the first four prophecies or parables of Matthew 13 tell us, demonstrate that the church at the end of the age of the Gentiles will be filled with corruption. The mixing of the, of the, of the leaven into the bread. Oh, look, Bread. The woman will mix leaven into the bread and corrupt all of the bread, it says. We have the influence of Jezebel at Thyatira. The black birds in the monstrosity of the mustard tree. Those parables tell us what's going to happen at the end of the age, as does the prophecies of Revelation 1 through 3. They form a bond. Satan's abundance of his traffic has therefore been very successful if you count votes. Eager, he didn't win the Electoral College. Let's just go that far. Never mind. I shouldn't put that kind of stuff in anything. But Satan's abundance of his traffic been successful, eagerly received by mankind, this world. And it should be noted that Satan Judas, when did we first see Satan Judas? We saw Satan Judas during the crucifixion week. So what was Satan Judas thinking during the crucifixion week? Why did Satan Judas start at the crucifixion week? Judas is the only one of whom it is said that Satan entered him, John 13, 27. No one else in all of Scripture, in all of history, has ever been described as Satan personally entered him. So, to help Ralph and Lorraine, it's only happened once. Judas is the only one whom Christ himself called the son of perdition, John 17, 7. Christ called him the evil thing, John 17, 15. And Christ, of course, is called the holy thing in Luke. What is she singing? Is it anything that I know? Mm-hmm. Whose grandchildren are these that constantly cause? That's right, yours. You are such a failure as a grandmother. How does that make you feel? Fortunately, I'm not involved in any of this at all. (laughs) I'll get mail on that, I hope. Okay. Judas is the only one of whom it is said that upon his death he went to his own place. Christ calls him the son of perdition. He calls no one else the son of perdition. He calls him the evil thing. No one else does Christ call the evil thing. Judas is the only one that when he died went to his own place. Satan is the, uh, Judas is the only person that Satan ever entered. (coughs) So that tells us something, that the lawless one, the son of perdition... 
the man of sin, the lie, Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 12. He's going to come again, Revelation 13, 1 through 4. And he's going to come out of his own place, Revelation 17, 8. And Satan will join him once again, enter into him, and deceive the world. And the mark of the beast is going to be accepted and embraced. And Satan will be worshipped. Uh, Satan will be worshipped. Satan will be worshipped. Satan likes to be worshipped. Matthew 4, Luke 4. Why does Satan like to be worshipped? But Satan will be worshipped and the beast will be worshipped, Revelation 17, 4. Satan has longed to be worshipped. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Matthew 4, 9, Luke 4, 9. Why? What does Satan gain from being worshipped? What is gained by having the mark of the beast, which is a form of worship? Why does Satan want the worship of angels, of Christ, of man? I do not want to be worshipped. Occasionally I enjoy being liked. That's a long way down here. I gave up respected years ago. But so it's odd to me. There are people who long to be worshipped, are there not? And we have a mass of people that long to worship them. Is that not so? The worst person that you could ever worship, in my view, is a politician. How anyone could ever cling to a politician, put their hopes on a human being, is astonishing to me. The only thing worse, maybe, is to worship a Hollywood actor. I mean, when you're looking for somebody to, to idolize, you've already made a mistake. You're in trouble. But when you've picked a Hollywood actress, I mean, there's no evidence of intelligence there. Right? There's nothing there. It's completely vacuous. Okay. We are now back in Matthew 4, aren't we? Because Satan wants Christ to worship him. Why does Satan want Christ to worship him? What does he gain by that? Again, I have an angelic host who he also wants to worship him. And since we've brought up Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4 anew, let's take another run at the stone and the bread. That's pretty much where we left off May 19, Lecture 65. Satan says to Jesus Christ, I have the two of them right there. How many times does Satan and Jesus Christ, how many times are they there? You can find them. Command these stones, lest you dash your foot against a stone. I Notice how I combine those? That's the first and the second thing, isn't it? Let me read it for you again, just in case somebody's new to the subject. If you are, or since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Since you are, or if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, I I truncated it, attenuated it, and put stone against stone. Command these stones, lest you dash your foot against a stone. He also says, throw yourself down, and then immediately subsequent, he says, fall down. So you see stone transferring and down transferring. In other words, 
all of them have this relationship. Stones appears in the first and the second tests of Satan and down in the second and third, as Matthew recounts them. Again, Luke has a different order. Mark, though, incredibly, have to read Mark. Mark says this, immediately after, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's baptism of John in the Jordan River where the axe head was, where the branches thrown in, where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is what Luke, or Mark says after that. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Oh, my gosh. Some translations will say sent. Either one is fine. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tested by Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. So, Mark emphasizes the wild beasts coming to the last Adam. Where am I in the Bible? I hope I asked you last time we were together, did, did Christ name every one of them? And he has the unfallen angels coming to Christ. So he has connected the wild beasts and the unfallen angels. He eliminates the three tests of Satan completely. He wants to focus on the wild beasts and the unfallen angels come to, coming to minister Christ. Why does he want to do that? Because Mark knows something incredible. But again, you could see that I have the wild beasts coming to the second Adam. That should tell you immediately what's happening. Matthew omits the wild beasts, as does Luke, but includes the ministering angels. Luke does not record the angels, but what he does is add time twice. The point being, yay, finally a point after, I'm on eight, page eight, finally got a point. All three accounts have to be read simultaneously. Don't let go of Mark because he provides incredible information. You have to condense it into one, if you will, in order to get a complete picture. I wish I could do that, Anthony. I just don't think I'm ever going to make it. But even then, if you've got them all condensed, at best, we're only going to have... Uh, we're only going to have some of it. The, we're going to have what God intended, but there are many pieces that uh, were not presented. That means you have to go to Genesis 2 and 3 to find the rest. Anyway, if you are, or since you are the Son of God, the Son of God, command these stones to become bread, Matthew 4, 3. Luke says, since you are, if you are the Son of bread, command this stone to become bread, Luke 4, 3. So the obvious question is this stone, this stone from Luke, I hope this was two weeks ago, is this the dash stone? Did I do that two weeks ago? Is this stone the dash stone? In other words, what does Psalm 91.12 have to do with all of this? Now i got to throw that in there. He says, lest you dash your foot against a stone. He says, I command this stone to become bread, unless you dash your foot against a stone. I want to know. Stone, stone is the same stone. Do you pick up a stone? 
So now we've got to read the psalm. How am I doing? Uh, not great. Psalm 91. Got to hurry now. Here it is. This is what he quotes. Satan. Why did Satan pick this? I've not yet found a commentary that gets it. They almost all say the same thing. They say, oh, he misquoted it. No, he didn't misquote it. Well, he didn't understand it. No, he understood it perfectly. How smart is Satan? Quit thinking he's an idiot. Why did he pick this? He has a reason. So here we go. Psalm 91, let's start at 9. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent shall you shall trample underfoot. <coughs> now over here in Psalm 91.3, Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. The fowler is the trapper of birds. And that literally perilous pestilence, the snare is plagues of evil. He shall deliver you from the plagues of the evil one, the fowler, the trapper of birds. What are birds? Genesis 15. Hopefully you immediately recognize the young lion and the serpent. That should be pretty easy because the young lion, Judges 14.5, Samson, Samson tears a young lion apart with his bare hands, doesn't he? The roaring young lion that Samson slays. Who's that? Tears him apart with his bare hands. Tore the lion apart. The young lion in Samson there is a brief picture of the Antichrist. The serpent is the serpent. Hope that's easy. So I have the Antichrist and I have Satan right there. In, in, in Psalms 91, verse what? 12, or is it 13? 13, I can't see with my glasses. I now need glasses. Lori does this. She has glasses here and glasses on top of them. So she has two sets of glasses. A very attractive look. I'm thinking to myself, there's money here. I could have glasses up here, glasses here, and glasses here, and I could rotate them all the way down or all the way in. Find the right glasses. I used to be able to put them on my head and read. I can't do that anymore. I can't see you at all, but you're all blurred out. Some of you are resting peacefully. Some of you are smiling. Some of you, I can't even begin to identify you at all. Just how it has become. Why did he choose 91, Satan of Psalms? He had to know. And hopefully you immediately, as I said, you recognize the serpent being the serpent and the young lion. At least get that far. This is Genesis 3, isn't it? The serpent is the serpent. I know, that's brilliant analysis. I get big money for this. But it's also Revelation 13, 1 through 4. Why did Satan choose? What are we making of this? Why did he choose Psalm 91? Psalm 91 has, Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the evil one. Does that sound familiar? 
Sure does. Matthew 6. Our Father who art in heaven, deliver me from the evil one. Not deliver me from evil. Read it again. Deliver me from the evil one. The snares of the evil one. The fiery darts, if you will. Notice that Satan did not add that last part that I did, verse 13. You shall, the young, you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Under what? Foot. What's up here? So that you, da- you don't dash your foot. Foot, foot. Satan doesn't mention the second foot. He mentions the first foot. Obviously, both Satan and the author of all Scripture, the Word, that's God Himself in the flesh, they're both there. Both knew that you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and serpent, you shall trample underfoot. It would be really convenient if they're all joined together. That would be convenient. But both Christ and Satan knew what was in Psalm 91, just as both know Genesis 3.15 Because this is Christ as the Ancient of Days in the picture that I gave you. This is where Christ as the Ancient of Days sentences um, the the serpent. And he says this at the end of of the sentencing. The seed of the woman shall kill the seed of the serpent. Bruise his head is a fatal term. It's a term meaning that the seed of the woman will kill the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent, however, will bruise the heel or the foot of the seed of the woman. Both of them knew that verse. So when Satan brings it up at Matthew 4, he knows that we're going to Psalm 91, and he knows we're going to Genesis 3. Bang, bang, bang. They speak in shorthand. They don't have to say, do you know that Psalm 91 goes back to Matthew 6, goes back to Genesis 3, 15? I'm obviously suggesting that Satan chose Psalm 91, 11 through 13 because it is Genesis 3:15. So how does this fit with bread? Command this stone to become bread. Well, if I'm right, what we're witnessing then is the entire, with the entirety of the angelic realm, all the people that are witnessing this. And remember the chronology. This is before the calling of the disciples. And remember that God, Mark 1.12 describes the Holy Spirit as driving Christ into the wilderness. Notice how I emphasize that. Christ is being driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Where else does God drive someone into the wilderness? Where else does God drive someone, period? Let me give you an idea. Genesis 3.23 Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. He also drove Israel into the wilderness, didn't he? The Elohim, the us, sins and drives the first Adam out of the garden. Well, of course he does. That's what Mark is saying to you in Mark 1. 
Go back to Genesis 3.23. And he sends Adam out of the garden. And where does he send him to? Where does he put him? Does he just send him out? Yeah, I go and just find your way. He sends him to a specific place. He sends Adam out of the garden to the place, to the ground from which he was formed. Genesis 2.7. Adam was formed from ground, from dust, and then placed into the garden that God had planted Genesis 2.8. Then after the fall, Adam is sent, driven out, and returned to the ground from which he was formed. He was formed by the ground in Genesis 2.7. I want to know, where exactly is that? Why does he put him right back to the ground? Of which, and he will return to the dust. Where do you think Adam is buried? Jesus Christ follows this template in a sense. In Mark 1.12, the driving out, the sending out of Christ, we have it reprised. But we also have Leviticus 16 at Mark 1.12. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the two goats, the, goats, the goat for the Lord and the goat for Azazel. Azazel is Satan. The goat for the Lord is killed to atone for sin, Leviticus 16.15 through 16. The goat for Satan, Azazel, is sent into the wilderness led by the hand of a suitable man. Luke 6, I'm sorry, Leviticus 16:21 through 22. I mean it can't be I don't think it can be any more clear than that. Obviously the two goats portray the redemptive work of Christ, what he has come to do. Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4 address the second goat of the two goats, the goat for Azazel, the goat that goes in front of Satan. The point being, yay, another point. How many points have I done? I think three. So I have to stop now. Because that's all I'm allowed and to have three points. But the point is that sending of Christ to Satan is beyond complex. The complicacy is unimaginable. I don't know what I can say to you. It's ridiculously complicated. The anointed cherub, the highest ranking angelic being, is face to face with the God Almighty. Again, think about that. And all of the angels are watching. The God Almighty is surrounded by animals. Do you think that any of them missed this? I have the Creator and I have Azazel. And the Creator is the Creator of Azazel. Does Satan recognize who Jesus Christ truly is? How many Yom Kippurs has he gone through where a goat has been given to him, led by a suitable man, and he has to look at it? How many times has he had to do that? Now he has Christ right there. He knows this is depicted by the goat. The goat for him. Does Satan realize who Jesus Christ truly is? Do the watching angels know? I submit that only Christ knows who he is. And somebody else. Who else knows who Christ is? He gives them a clue. Animals. Animals are drawn to their creator. They will run to him. You think your dog loves you most. Wait till you see what happens. No angel, fallen or unfallen, has figured out the mystery of the God-man, Jesus Christ, at Matthew 4. None of them have. 
So Satan naturally, knowing that no one knows the mystery of the God-man, not even Satan knows the mystery of the God-man, the only thing that he can bring up in this point is Psalm 91 and Genesis 3.15. Satan would assume, as he did at John 13.27, John 18, Matthew 26.47 through 55. Look them up on your own spare time. That the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 was imminent. He would think this is what? I have got the seed of the woman right here in front of me. What's going to happen? I have the seed of the serpent. Where is the seed of the serpent? How close by is he? He would assume that this is the time when the seed of the woman is going to kill the seed of the serpent. Would he not? At least we're in the proximity of it. And obviously Satan would anticipate that the final conflict was about to occur, as would every angel watching would assume. Therefore, Satan says, command this stone to become bread. And you have to put it in the context of Genesis now. Satan had been. He had been there the whole time. He had seen. He was marking off the days. He counted out the 40 days. How long did Christ not eat? Forty days. He's in the desert. Clearly, Jesus Christ has no dependency on water or food. What I mean by that, God can sustain himself. Duh. He has no need of food. He has no need of air. He has no need of water. He has no need of rest. He has no need of light. He is the bread of life. He is the breath of life. He is the living water. He is the great Satan rest. Uh, Satan rest. He is the great Sabbath rest. He is the light of life. He is these things. He doesn't need to go get them. He's the source of them. We're the dependent ones. The animals are the dependent ones. The angels are dependent in some way. But God is not more duh. And Satan being the wisest, Ezekiel 28, of all angelic beings, he's full, overflowing with wisdom. He would have deduced quickly that Christ is not the same as Adam was. There's a difference here. The last Adam is far more powerful. But again, I don't believe that Satan had solved the mystery of godliness. He just saw all of these things that Christ is doing that Adam could not do. And I'm going to get letters on Melchizedek in Genesis 14. I think Satan did not understand the deity of Christ, uh, irrespective of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 or Genesis 18 and 19. Again, I believe that's Melchizedek again. But I've got to resist the digression, digression that is Melchizedek. Sorry. Not really. Satan knew that this was an elevation to Genesis 3. This was indeed the seed of the woman. He did not see Adam as a threat to him, but he does see the seed of the woman as someone that can kill the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent has to be there because he saw the seed of the woman being born. Did he not? He would have known about the sending of Gabriel. He would have heard Gabriel, seen Gabriel. He saw the court of Daniel coming from Babylon. So, now the end was approaching. No one knew of the great parentheses, which is the church age. That wasn't considered. No one knew about any of that. All of that to say the bread is not about eating. The bread is not about Christ being dependent. I know it says he's hungry. That's God saying he's hungry. God's hungry is not the same as our hungry. Our hungry is going to be dealt with in the buffet. God's hunger is dealt with where? He hungers for what? 
So the bread is not about eating, not about dependency, which means what's left? What can the bread be about? The alternative is that it is the dust of the ground. You see, last Sunday I asked, why didn't Satan ask, command this dust of the ground, make this dust into a living being, or make it into lice? Exodus 8.19, John 8.6, Genesis 2.7. He didn't ask Christ to do that. Because why? He didn't think he could do it. He thought only who could do it. God could do it. He didn't think Christ is God. Makes him like most churches. Satan didn't know yet that he was face to face with the face of God. So he reverts. He continues with that which he has prevailed with all this time. The lie of existence. Remember this about Israel. They are driven out into the wilderness. And what accusation do they make against Christ? I was talking to the Daniel about this. The Daniel. Since we've not seen the other Daniel for some time. What accusation did Israel make about to to God? You have brought us out here to what? To kill us. In other words, all of this stuff that you are doing is solely to kill us. That is what? That is the lie of Satan. Word for word. When he told the angels, you have what? You do not have what? You don't have identity. You don't have existence. You don't have anything. You're all an illusion. And at some point, God will erase every one of you. You do not have eternity. You have, that's why God says you must have, you have eternal life. And you have, he talks about our eternity, whether it's a destiny of eternity in the lake of fire, whether it's a destiny of eternity reconciled to him. You have eternity. And Satan says you don't have eternity. He will erase you at any time. And God says the opposite. That's a lie. That would make God evil. And Christ's response, man does not live. Man does not have life by bread alone. Man lives. Life is from the mouth of God, he says. And implies that man has life. And Satan counters that Christ cannot kill himself. Remember that? in order. And that's a great irony because God must give up his life. No one can take it from him. John 10, 17 through 18. Again, that's evidence that Satan does not know who this is. Anyway, Satan implies or proclaims that God will not let Christ die and that Christ has no control, no will of his own. What's that mean if Christ has no control and no will of his own? That he has no existence. And the lie of Israel, or the accusation of Israel, you have brought us out here. You have created us just to kill us. It's the same lie. And the second test is intimately connected to the first. And both are linked to Genesis 2 and 3, and also to the existence of the angels. Where did angels come from? What material are they made of? Satan tells them, you're just created so that God can kill you. Man is not dust alone. Man has something from the mouth of God. And my question becomes, doesn't Satan know that? Why doesn't he know that? Maybe sometime soon we'll try to answer that.